0: My name is Sasha Jenkin. I've always been fascinated by what makes people tick and I've been fortunate enough to pursue this interest in my work as a therapist for the best part of the last 20 years. So many of us struggle with liking ourselves. I notice this challenge in people regardless of their status or life experience and it's something I've grappled with clients and with myself, finding a way to like ourselves, to sit with who we are and say, I'm okay. In this podcast, I discuss this subject with other professionals who work with people, counsellors, therapists, mediators and coaches amongst others, to uncover how they feel it within themselves and how they work on it with their clients. So, join us in the Validation Lounge, discover the diverse ideas and ways of working in the self-help field, get to learn more about human beings and you might even learn to like yourself a little more. Welcome to the Validation Lounge. Today, I have Emily Duval with me. Emily, could you just introduce
1: yourself, please, and your area of interest and um, your training? Sure. Thank you for having me, Sasha. So my name is Emily Duval. I'm a doctor of psychology in organization development, and I am a licensed clinical psychotherapist. So I'm a PsyD and LPCC, and also in the UK, I am a BACP accredited. I specialize in suicide postvention, that's the aftermath of suicide, um, in addition to um, other general psychotherapy work.
0: And what what does validation mean to you? When I say that word, what, what comes
1: up for you? I feel like validation is something that gets expressed in different types of languages. So thinking of it generally, you know, people find validation through touch, through speech, through facial expressions, um, to feeling accepted. Um, for me personally, it's, it, the, it's words. I, I think for, mm-hmm. the best way to feel validated for me is words of sincerity and that type of expression.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Is that a kind of a written word or when someone says that to you or, or, or I, or both of those it's both. I would say certainly, yeah, written written words, but also uh, language. I think you know mm. the spoken exchange.
0: Mm. So, so, so if someone would uh, sort of say something to you or write something for you, that would help you to feel validated.
1: Yeah, and I mean it depends on what the context is as well, you know, mm-hmm. if if like, you know, recently, you know, getting my finishing my doctorate and you know, I think just the the kind of feedback and um praise that I got was very validating. You know, it's some people validating your efforts like, you know, Emily, you're you've uh, always been so dedicated and um you know, you've taken on things um you know, at different stages of life and um Just you know, I think those kinds of words of praise and support mm. you know are, can be extremely validating
0: yeah, and that's very true you you're very dedicated and you work really hard mm. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> and can you remember the the first time that you felt that you realized that you kind of felt
1: important? Well, this is an interesting question. So I had to think about this for a while. Um, and I think, you know, going back, it was probably like high school. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's like going back 35 years, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, so as, you know, a teenager and, um, and I will say that it was probably praise for writing because I really felt like mm. I could write fairly well in school. I was not, you know, popular or, um, very visible, I think at that age yet. And I, um, so it was, I think I got, yeah, praise, you know, validation from teachers and, and started feeling kind of noticed, uh, less of a wallflower, um, smart, you know, and then maybe Mm -hmm. attractive as well, coming out of my shell because I had a lot of, you know, love and comfort at home, but that was very different, you know, because that's with your parents. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so that's, you know, a different experience of validation, I would say, or, you know, that sense of importance. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in the outside world. So,
0: And there's something about teachers that, you know, you're just saying that has just reminded me of something that I've completely forgotten about is having a similar experience when I was probably around the same age of, writing a poem and an English teacher saying to me oh is this is really good and it's like what me what? right and I, yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah and I think it's like someone who's a teacher for I suppose for me teachers I was quite in awe of them um not in, maybe not in awe but very respectful of them and they weren't kind of like they were kind of sort of up on a bit of a pedestal for me and for like a teacher to say to me you know, I like your writing, it was really, oh my gosh, maybe I am okay or I have something to offer. I don't know
1: if it was like that for you. Yeah, I mean, in fact, I think it actually probably was an English teacher as well for me, mm-hmm. um, you know, which, you know, is linked obviously with writing and literature and those kinds of assignments. Um, so, yeah, because it certainly would not would not have been a math class, I'll put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> no, same here. So
0: <laughs> were you... I should I should know this but you were you were you in the states
1: yeah high school because you have oh, your yeah. family of French yeah uh well my so my dad is a uh, Parisian yeah. um yeah but he immigrated here to New York in 1958 Okay. Um, yeah and then got his citizenship and uh, my mom's from California but her grandparents mm-hmm. were Scottish so that's, um, that's that side of the family, but ethnically we're Italian. So my Indian. dad, even though he's, yeah, speaks French and French culture, ethnically, the family's Italian. So
0: and, and did your father speak French to you when you were little?
1: Yes, I did grow up uh, mostly bilingual and I just got very lazy, I would say. And then sort of, you know, I did take French all through high school cause it was easy. And then I did take it again in college <laughs> again, cause it was easy cause I knew, you know, had a conversations, but, um, I think just, I took it for granted. I never needed to aspire to perfect the language because I just, you know, it was like, Oh, it was, I don't know. It's just different when you sort of grow up with something like that. Um, but now of course being much older, I, I wish that I had practiced it more and, you know, was more fluent than I am because right now I can only say I'm you know, proficient, uh, at speaking French. So. Mm. Um, yeah but that's that's also you know a very important part of um, your paradigm I think in how you see the world is that when you grow up bilingual or with other languages you do see other the world from different Mm. lens through different lenses um, when you understand different languages so
0: could you say a little
1: bit more about that Um, just that um, you know it's sometimes it just comes down to the way that sentences are framed um, mm-hmm. in other languages and you start to go, oh, yes, that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see now why they might describe that. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, and because there are different expressions for certain things, you know, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I would say that when you certainly get into the mechanics of other languages and, um, you know, how things are phrased and expressed, then you realize it, you, you can't help but compare it to English, right? So mm-hmm. sometimes you'll do things and then you end up thinking the same thing in French in your mind or, mm. if was, you know, a Spanish speaker, then they think it in Spanish. Um, so when you're constantly kind of making these comparisons, you're seeing things that are alike through language, mm-hmm. and seeing things that are unlike. I guess, mm-hmm. but I'm certainly not a linguistics expert, so <laughs> these are just my kind of opinions and experiences of of what it is. But I, I really do believe that when you speak other languages, you do it opens up your world a lot. You you do mm-hmm. kind of stretch your your vision of of understanding
0: and i think you said something in there about feeling other and how it can help us when we're all speaking the same language like that how i just think about how um i think i find it quite scary when i'm in other countries and, I, and i'm not speaking that language it definitely affects my assertiveness mm-hmm. and then it can also feel really wonderful when you kind of brave, you know, saying a few a few phrases or a few words and then feel,
1: oh no, I fit in, maybe. Right, right. And that's actually a good example of um of validation to um <clears throat> excuse me, when um let's say like, you know, you're you're in another country and you're practicing your like, you know, when I go to somewhere like Morocco or Tunisia, I the French I speak there fits in just fine because it's mm-hmm. the second language for them as well. So and, you know, they see that I'm not from there and they're like, oh, you know, what's quelle nationalité? You know, where are you from? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I would explain, well, I'm a dual citizen, British American, but I, you know, speak French and then, you know, we start speaking French and then you have a conversation and they understand you. You understand them. It's a very validating experience.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like someone goes from being another to being to being. You know, you, you kind of have yeah that kind of mutual mutuality. And I mm-hmm. realised I should have said right at the beginning that I'm talking to you in um, San Diego. So um, yeah, so just to kind of let everyone know that as well. So um, I wonder. If you could just talk a little bit about how you think about validation in terms of either your kind of theoretical way of working or your area of um, professional experience, if it comes in, if if, the, if it comes into that, you know how how that comes
1: into it. Um, I mean, I would just say it's sort of in the context of. My uh, modality that I grew into, which you know, as you know, it takes like seven to nine years of being a therapist to really get comfortable with your modality. Um, it, it did for me because um, mm-hmm. I've been doing this since 1998, so it was mm-hmm. like maybe 2006 or something like that. No, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Let's say it's probably like around 2006 where I started to get really comfortable in feeling like, yes, you know, I'm an integrative, you know, therapist of the foundation of family systems theory. Um, so for me, I see that as a way of finding worth within the system. So what's mm-hmm. my role? How do I contribute to the system? So when I do or say something, or when I hold back from something, how is that impacting others? Does the system shift? Is it moving around? Is it in my favor or against me? Um, So that's kind of how I would see that in the context of the way I work. So thinking about how, when you start
0: contributing to a system, how does the system shift? Mm -hmm. Mm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sort of goes back to that, um, Sort of I guess the metaphor they use with family systems theory you know of the of the mobile, right, so you have all these little yeah. in a hanging mobile, and if just one you just flick one or blow on one it, though it's the one might might spin, but the whole thing moves,
0: yeah,
1: yeah, um yeah, so seeing that kind of interaction,
0: so in terms of validation then. That, that, that when if we think of ourselves as being part of a system, that our validation might perhaps shift and change according to how we feel about ourselves and with different people in different systems. So, a, a system could be a, like being at work at the people that you're at work with. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that, is that right?
1: Well, sure. Yeah. It could be, you know, within your immediate household, it could be your cohorts, or your, you know, your colleagues at work or, um, Yes. I mean, and it's sort of like, so it's going to validate or invalidate your behaviors or lack mm. thereof. So, you know, and it doesn't necessarily mean either one is positive or negative, you know, but it's, um, okay. Yeah. It's, it's because there's a response, right? So mm. it's not like you're just doing something in isolation, that whatever you're doing impacts the system. Okay that
0: yeah that the mobile is going to shift somehow
1: mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. and yeah so what that kind of makes me think about my next question which is around the role of relationships which seems i i guess quite key in that in the systems because i guess it all, we have we'll have relationships with each of those people
1: Hmm. sure yes yeah i mean and i guess you could say that um You know, when you get outside of the system, when you have opportunities to go outside of your system, we kind of seek out relationships with people who are like us or who seem to have the same kind of world paradigm. So it could be that we want to draw out certain qualities, you know, of ourselves that we haven't tapped into yet, but we sort of recognize in others. Mm -hmm. Um, And we want validation from people who seem like us or maybe um, what we aspire to, you know, um, to find within ourselves. Um, so, yeah, I would say that, you know, within relationships and self-worth, there's a lot of holding up a mirror. Um, mm. But sometimes you have to go outside the system to find those things. <laughs> you, you can't always get the kind of validation or self-worth, yeah. you know, that you yeah. need within your own system. Mm-hmm.
0: And I suppose, I guess, the, the the kind of most important system is our family in terms of how much it influences us. Is
1: that what we'd say, what you'd say in that kind of theory? Well, it's certainly the, the first one. It's, you know, yeah. whatever the sense of family is that you have in the beginning, that's where the foundation lies. Okay. So it could be, you know, a traditional family, a non-traditional family, or it could yeah. be that you were orphaned and you know, raised in some kind of facility. But whatever it is, that's that's sort of the original blueprint of where you're starting. And that's your first system. Yeah, and
0: I guess it's not necessarily guaranteed that you're going to experience from within your family a feeling of self-worth. No, yeah, not at all. Um, And that makes me think about how some people kind of feel quite liberated once they leave their families and kind of realise that they can... (laughs) have other
1: systems in their lives and other relationships
0: mm-hmm. through yeah. sure which they can feel self worth
1: yeah and also you know and it's certainly you know as you know from people coming into therapy and stuff over the years is that they they're trying to seek out you know relationships maybe within systems not consciously doing that but but that are better that are improved but sometimes they end up stuck you know going back into the same system yeah yeah. System that they um, you know came from because that's their yeah. only form of reference that's their sort of world paradigm so they don't have yeah other and maybe they just don't have the opportunities to find something else um, yeah or even them. sometimes my experience has been that the family
0: might feel so threatened by someone leaving that system that they make it very difficult for them to do that
1: Yes. Yeah. And, and I, you know, in systems work, we do talk about like open families and, you know, or open systems and closed systems and, mm-hmm. and some systems are very closed. I mean, you see that a lot with like very religious homes um, mm-hmm. or homes where there's very like strong ways of thinking maybe politically or whatever, but um, you know, there's usually at least one domineering character there. Um mm-hmm know in the way of thought and um expression so yes closed systems are usually very hard to work with
0: <laughs> mm, yeah yeah and, and I, I see that my kind of I sort of seem to become my area of kind of expertise part of that is, is around abuse and domestic abuse and that's often the case in those kind of relationships as well that it can be very dangerous to even think about leaving those relationships.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Um, and yeah, the thing that I've always found, I mean, I, I worked out, the more experience, like you say, the more experience that I got, when I first started working in that field, I was told that it wasn't helpful to work with people to, to offer them um counseling while they were still in the abusive relationship and I was like oh why not and then the more I've actually done the work the more I can see that actually that if you think of it as a system that system is so closed that there's that that, that, that the therapy just can't work because the person's just going to keep going back to it they can't they can't feel they can't Actually, feel the the the, the sense of self worth from within enough to remove themselves from that system.
1: If anything, they will look for pieces of the therapy that find reasons to validate why they should stay in the relationship. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. irrational. It sounds very warped, but that's ha- that that can happen.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah so um another i've also been thinking a lot about shame lately (laughs) it's such a horrible (laughs) word I kind of even saying it well for me even saying it i think it's a bit kind of like but i wondered if that's something that you that's
1: come into your work at all sure yeah i i mean um it's you know certainly an element i think in any kind of therapeutic odyssey Mm. for people who get deeply into it um you know, right now it's, you know, a lot of people are reading Brene Brown and quoting her on shame and stuff. Yeah. Um, She's very in. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I think, um, you know, shame occurs in the context of something usually that is traumatic and that, you know, it could be just something traumatic with a small T doesn't have to be anything massive, but, you know, um, but to To quote you know somebody else um <laughs> mm-hmm. uh there's a psychiatrist, uh James Gilligan, who wrote a book called Violence, and um you know he talked about understanding that to really understand what provokes shame, you have to be able to see the triviality of the incident that actually makes mm-hmm. it shameful. Peter Levine, who wrote a book mm-hmm. on trauma waking the tiger, kind of explained that. You know, when people are feeling very overwhelmed, they can't successfully defend themselves, and they mm-hmm. often feel ashamed. Uh, so then, when they act out violently, they are seeking vengeance and justice for having been shamed. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think I think that's a really good example when you look at it through a trauma informed lens of mm-hmm. how shame is tied to self worth, or better mm-hmm. said, how shame is tied to a sense of worthlessness and that it could just be something that to someone else might seem really quite trivial, mm-hmm.
0: but because it, it it evokes shame within the person, they can be so triggered by that that they could actually even be kind of react violently.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Or, or just, you know, on a smaller scale, just act out in ways, maybe, you know, being very passive aggressive or nasty or. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, I mean, it, just to use an example, I mean, this can happen like even driving, you know, road rage. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> but,
1: yeah. Yeah. You to look at it in a smaller scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder
0: what it is about being in a car that I think maybe I feel invincible, but it's I, uh, my son's like, Mom, <laughs> who's this person that suddenly appeared when um, someone dares to cut me up or shake their head because I did something not quite right yeah and I I guess I must there must be some kind of shame response for me in there about not not doing it right or
1: right or even like yeah if you have your son in the car or others you know passengers it's almost like well how dare this person you know impose on me or um criticize my driving you know well I have so and so in the car or you know what I mean like yeah yeah
0: Absolutely. Yeah, That's but- a really good point, because I think I was just listening to a podcast recently with a family system, um, internal family system guy whose name I just can't remember. But he was saying it's the thing about actually someone being someone observing you to be bad, which is it's like that can be that shame trigger. It's not just something that we experience from within, but actually being seen to be bad, you know, so someone else seeing mm-hmm. what's going on, which is um, the kind of difficult shaming um, right so. yeah and i mean just is there any kind of i don't know i'm thinking about suicide and shame i wonder if that's i don't know if that's something that you've that there's been part of your research or your experience or um but it feels like i don't know so, that someone may be very shame ridden to feel that they need to to do that that's that's a kind of a really uh simplistic way that i put that but
1: i don't know if that's come in at all to your world sure yeah no i can certainly address that but just to back up quickly on something you said mm-hmm. about internal family systems i think the guy oh, with yeah. is frank anderson <laughs> is it frank <laughs> no it wasn't frank it was
0: okay oh my gosh. yeah but i do
1: really like frank anderson He's okay great. yeah yeah all right <laughs> anyway um so yeah so because I deal in postvention so that's the aftermath of suicide so yeah because because that is a very um, suicide it, grief is generally very complex it is a different animal than other types mm-hmm. of grief that people experience and so survivors of suicide loss those are those who've lost a loved one to suicide um, you know often experience, you know, layers and layers of, uh, distress, confusion, um, you know, and because suicide as a phenomenon is stigmatized, Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of shame that comes in with that. So yes, that does emerge a lot, I would say in my, uh, subject matter for sure. Um, Mm. you know, and that, that people you know often will be reluctant sometimes to explain you know the cause of death in public settings or to even with you know other close people they know because there is that sense of shame uh and it's yeah. all tied to the stigma around suicide
0: mhm yeah and and i mean i think talking about death is always difficult but then to have to to kind of explain that to others must feel I can understand why people would find that even harder.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's yeah, like, yeah, Because yeah. with with also with suicide death, there is an inordinate amount of blame, also finger pointing, and you know, well, why did this happen? And um, mm. you know, what could you have done differently? Or um, you know, sometimes it's self imposed, but sometimes it is imposed by those around us um but you can mm. see how it makes that the grieving grieving experience uh for survivors um yeah. you know that's more complex and isolating
0: yeah 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 and um how about um feelings is that and and, and self-worth is that something that you've has come into your work
1: um i think that so i need a little more um context on that like can you give an example of um of what you mean by that i think
0: that for me the more i'm able to be with my feelings so for example i think i have um learned that being angry isn't um okay but if i am allowed to, to to feel angry if I allow myself to feel okay about being angry, then sometimes it can actually help me motivate me to do yeah. things that are impor- important for me. So um I guess maybe I should think about that question a bit more rather than it being so I think maybe it's to do with the um how I how the inability to uh sit with feelings can um kind of mean that they that they morph into other things like anxiety or guilt or ways of being that kind of stop us from being ourselves Mm
1: -hmm. does that make sense yes and i would say okay so looking at it through like the lens of grief um is that sometimes you really have people have to learn to give themselves permission to feel the feelings Mm. um the sense of self-worth comes later Um, so like, you know, in a grief situation, yes, you, you know, as I've said to hundreds of clients over the years, um, you have to sit with it. You just have to learn Mm. to sit with it. Um, whatever the unpleasant, you know, feelings are that come up and there's often, you know, it's somatic, so there's physical sensations, um, but just learning how to sit with that. Um, mm-hmm. so I would say, yeah, I think for me, that comes back to sort of giving yourself permission and a lot of times, um, you know, for clients, they can get to that place quite successfully w- in therapy.
0: Hmm. So would you do, do you any, do, would you do any kind of work in, um, learning to identify how feelings might kind of, kind of bubble up in, in, in our bodies or, or not? Is that like when you say well,
1: somatically, Sure. Because people will describe, you know, what's going mm-hmm. on for them. And, you know, usually, you know, clients, whether they, whether you're in a group setting or, you know, individual, um, you know, people, you sort of check in and say, well, how are you doing? And that's how you how are you the whole person? Um, and, you know, yeah. and people will say, oh, you know, I'm so achy or, uh, you know, I've had headaches or um you know, I just can't stand up straight or whatever is, is going on for them. Um, Or, you know, I'm battling a virus constantly. I can't shake it. Um, But when you get the sense of what's going on sort of biologically and physically for the person in the context of, you know, why they came to you in the first place. So whatever bigger loss is going on, um, Mm -hmm. then you can get sort of a more holistic picture of, of how you want to carry on with treatment.
0: And how about um, gender, your gender? I mean, one of the things that I've, I think has come up a few times in, um, in these discussions has been around um, for women, and it's probably more and more the case for men, but for for women anyway. For me, I know that I was kind of from quite a young age aware that how I looked was kind of tied to how I felt about myself. Mm-hmm. Is that something that that, that you've experienced or...?
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it has a lot to do with your identity and how you kind of make your way in the world and how you feel like others perceive you, um, which is usually never the way that they do. But <laughs> we like to think, <laughs> you know, that we have control over that. I, I would say certainly, my sense of feminism has evolved over the years. You know, of being, you know, almost fifty and like, you know, a divorced person and you know having had a lot of different kinds of relationships and, um, you know, certainly living through, you know, decades of seeing a lot of, I would say injustices um, Mm. for women that still go on. And I, you know, and having traveled a lot and and I still do believe that um, women are a minority. Um, I agree with, um, you know, Simone de Beauvoir's um, original statement, you know, we're the second sex Um, and we Mm. are. And it's still very much a man's world. And that won't change in our lifetime, you know, so you can see on the surface, you know, clearly how women have, you know, evolved and taken on relationships of power and decision-making and in certain levels of society. But um, globally, we are pretty well led by um, male influence. It's a very, very male dominated world. Um, So I think, because, you know, obviously you and I are both women, we've sort of, that's our world paradigm. Um, yeah. That's that's just how we see things. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I'm certainly, you know, again, as I get older, you know, much more sensitive to it as well. That's made me think about loads
0: of different things. Were you just saying that? But I, I mean, one of the things that I've been reading lately, I, I don't know if you agree with this, is that um, the covid situation has really set back a lot of um like a lot of women are doing a lot of stuff and a lot a lot more stuff in that at home in the house and and the gender division of, of labor has kind of gone back like 50 years but the other thing that i was i was talking to some friends about i can't remember what the context was but a friend of mine said that she felt that um that women's rights in america have that women don't have as many rights as they did in the 1970s in America but I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's true. I don't, I don't know if that's uh maybe it varies from state to state, but.
1: Um, so I, yes, I would sort of need to think of what like laws they were looking at, but certainly in yeah, terms yeah. of yeah, personal freedom. And generally speaking, we do have more rights than we did in the 70s. It's just that people, the perception of like the sixties and seventies was like, Oh, very liberating and like, you know, yeah, um, but it doesn't mean that we had the rights on paper
0: yeah and that's kind of makes me think about something else that I've been thinking about a lot lately in terms of um our self worth and um how much empower- how how empowered we feel you know and that kind of that was one of the areas that I wanted to if you if you'd kind of come across that at all but that um how and again I realize the question's a bit woolly but um if we it, if we feel power from within, we're more likely to feel more self worth. Um, mm. is, is that something that's that's talked about in your theory or in your
1: your experience? Well, sure. I mean, just for, again, from you know my own experiences and then working with clients, is that you know that sense of empowerment is the fe- is the feeling that hey, I have the freedom to make decisions. Mm-hmm. I can make decisions, and I can act on them. And I have the freedom to change my mind if it doesn't work, right? So it's having that ability to break out of old routines. Um, And so when you experiment with new uh, routines, you can then feel a sense of empowerment. Mm. Um, You can reflect on the choice that you made on your behaviors and decide whether it was right for you. And then that gives you a sense of control. Um, Mm. And as I'm always like, talking about and educating clients, it's like that, the the internal locus of control. So, so I, you know, have, um, utility and, and agency over, um, what's going on in my life. It's not all these external forces that determine what I do. Um, but unfortunately in the context of, you know, laws and, and, um, you know, regulations that, that that's an area where, you know people again can feel quite um disempowered because suddenly you know the laws are changing now you don't have the decision to to manage how you know something you know you know to do with your own body and that's a very frightening prospect so
0: it really is yeah yeah and yeah that's I mean that's actually why I wanted to do this podcast because it's something that I think about a lot with and about with my clients, you know um that internal locus of control that feeling internal validation, feeling it from within, and I think it's something that is really i think it's quite challenging actually to to get to a point f- to feel that and um yeah what's going on now politically is really really kind of impeding some of the areas that we may have felt that we had that kind of personal control and before and that's mm-hmm. really true what you say it's so important to be able to change our minds you know, that we mm-hmm. if, if we do something that we can actually it doesn't it, it's okay as long as it's not hurting someone else or ourselves mm-hmm. and then we can change our minds that's not that's not a big deal mm-hmm. say that to ourselves that what's more important is our what is, what is right for us going forward.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that it might change, you know. Yeah. It could very well change in the future and that's okay too. Yeah,
0: yeah. And um, do you think about your race at all? I mean, I feel like I, it's something that I, I hadn't been talking about then I actually thought I should ask everyone about this because there's been so much politically about how there is lack of power um, if if you're not white and oh. I think it, so I, I, and I and it made me think about how well how I think I feel a bit of shame when I start trying to sort of explore my own place and, and of, of white privilege but also thinking about asking these questions but you know yeah. I wonder I mean I, I realize that I just take it for granted and I don't have to think about the fact that I'm white because it's that's the norm that's what's around me everywhere so in terms oh my. of my 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 color that that, I, that I'm uh, you know that I I feel comfortable with that, but I wonder if that's something that you've thought about or.
1: So, yes. And I actually think about it all the time and also how Mm. it's related to gender as well. So the way I would talk about this is that, um, you know, as, as a woman with, um, you know, dark hair and dark eyes, you know, and kind of light olive skin, you know, kind of very Southern Mediterranean looking person, you know, who is Mm -hmm. quote unquote considered, you know, white, but I'm not exactly Anglo. Um, mm. But I am very, very conscientious of the archetypes of light and dark that represent good and evil. And this mm. has been going on for all of our, I mean, for centuries, but all of our lives, certainly. Mm. Um, and these are sort of primordial messages that come through in film and literature and the way dolls are made. And and, you know, that basically, you know, if you, <laughs> that light has always been sort of the more positive characters and, you know, the dark haired characters were always kind of representing, you know, something more evil. So I'm just going to give you an example. Mm-hmm. And it's um, The Wizard of Oz. Um, and that certainly wasn't the first film to do it, but it's just a very famous one that people can relate to. So you know, in The Wizard of Oz, you have um, Glenda, the good witch, who's like, you know, light and blonde and, you know. Um, you know, it was supposed to represent goodness and kindness and everything else. And then you have Dorothy, who's like kind of this sweet, cute little kind of red-haired, freckled, you know, faced girl. And then you have um, the evil witch. I can't remember exactly what her name was, but um, <laughs> but of course she has like the witchy dark hair, right? Mm. And when you're a child that has that same dark hair, and you grow up with these kind of messages, you can. That's the world you're looking at and and again that's certainly not the only film um, um or representation of that I see it all the time I mean look at any Disney you know yeah, I was um,
0: thinking that as you were saying uh, it I was thinking yeah. of Snow
1: White well she has dark hair
0: I guess but um Cinderella it, but already...
1: yeah yeah, Cinderella. yeah yeah very few I would say kind of like this sort of like pretty you know kind of um I don't even want to use the word role model, but you know what I mean, where you actually mm-hmm. had dark hair. Certainly when I was growing up, okay, so 70s and 80s, you know, at the time, like, you know, and in the 70s when I was had, you know, dolls and things like that, um, I was not allowed to have a Barbie doll. My mother did not allow that in the house. Um, she didn't like the messages of Barbie, you know, Barbie at the time was strictly this kind of bleached blonde looking, you know. uh your girl. mom. Yeah. High heel, like the, her, the way her feet were, it was as though she yeah. you know, was supposed to have high heels. And my mom's like, I don't, I don't not want a that. tiny waist. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. She's like, I don't want that influence. So I never had one. And my girlfriends would all have these little Barbie tall parties and stuff. And I'd go along, and I'd be like, yeah, well, I don't have a Barbie. And they're like, what? How can you not have a Barbie? I'm like, cause I don't, you know, my mom <laughs> didn't endorse that at home. And, um, you know, I was somebody that kind of played a lot more with tinker toys and blocks and stuff like that anyway. Mm-hmm. But but just to give you an example, again, these are very sort of pervasive images, I think that, you know, we grew up with and um, that, and I will say, and it, this might be controversial for some people, that there is such a thing as blonde privilege. There is. And when you're a dark haired person, you see it. So it's not just white privilege. It's also blonde privilege. Um and I have to uh, just say that I'm blonde yes out yes yes, but it is a, it is a thing um and again I mean unless you're like a dark-haired person you don't notice it so when I you know years and years ago after the um one of the first Austin Powers movies came out
0: mm-hmm.
1: I uh went to a Halloween party and I made my costume and I dressed up as one of those bot characters and I wore a blonde wig. And, um, I was treated so differently. Really? Um, yes. And there were people at this party that I knew very well, including my boyfriend at the time. And then there were cohorts, you know, people I had worked with, there were just other friends, groups of friends. There were people that had never met me. And that may not have even realized I was wearing a wig. Um, they might have, but they were drinking. So it was like, they just got the first impression of me as a blonde haired person. And I can't even, and I was in my twenties and, but I can't even tell you, like, obviously, you know, it made a big impression on me how I was treated because I was like, good Lord. But I saw it, you know, and I was like, wow. And it was oddly disconcerting. It was like, this so how is- how did
0: they treat you? What did, What was it that was so different?
1: I would say a lot more flirtatious and um, googly eyed, kind of a lot more, um, oh, who are you? And yeah, just in a much more kind of um, superficial way um, that was like, um, hey, baby, you know, it was like suddenly this kind of like instant, like, who are you kind of um, attention that like I really didn't get as a dark haired woman you know normally and um even though I you know was foxy and everything at that age it was like you know I still
0: still
1: make you a dark-haired person so that so I felt like people would start conversations first more you know it was more conversational than hey who are you you know this kind of like um Mm. how about it buttercup kind of thing um so yeah like people felt
0: less not that you're intimidating but people felt like less able to people felt more able just to talk to you because they wanted to um and because they uh, it sort of almost felt like that they saw you as a little bit more sort of childish or maybe that like you had less power or kind of does it feel like
1: that or not? I don't know. I don't know because I don't live my life as a blonde haired person, but, um, but it was just <laughs> I, so do. I, yeah, I can't even like, um, but yes, just the way that that sort of male, it was with males, you know, interaction okay. was like, it was another world. It was like, what is going on here? But it was like, I was curious about it and kind of amused. I would say mm-hmm. but at the same time, uh, quite happy to take off the wig at the end of the night and be like, oh, you know, I'm glad I don't have to deal with that. <laughs> yeah. And um, Yeah. I mean, and you've seen that kind of same scenario like done on sitcoms, you know, over the years, you know, where like so somebody's a brunette and suddenly she's like, oh, I'm buying a blonde wig. He, 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 and suddenly it gets very giggly and silly and, you know, kind of then all these things that are kind of stereotypical, uh, yeah. but not really true, you know, of like having blonde hair and you know, but yeah. it's, it's, certainly you know, been, uh, played out, I would say, um, that, yeah. that there is a difference people that women are treated differently, whereas men, not so much. I mean, men can get away with, you know, having any sort of hair color. I think I probably redheaded men would probably <laughs> say they have a harder time, but, but generally yeah. speaking, you know, they can go the whole spectrum, you know, right up to gray and, and still get, that maybe that's like that kind of like respect and validation that they. Yeah,
0: but I th-
1: I think that
0: generally men, it's that whole thing of the male gaze, isn't it? That the, the mm-hmm. kind of that mm-hmm. often that men don't need to think about being in the world. Of well, I'm, I'm sure this is changing, and maybe it changes and it's different in different cultures. But I think men don't need to be as concerned about how they look in order to be accepted Mm -hmm. or they need to look a particular way Mm
1: -hmm.
0: but but, I mean I know that's I I, I'm sure that I, I mean I'm always really wary of sweeping statements but I think generally it's something that's not not kind of drummed into them from when they're very you know as soon as they're born almost that part of their role is to be looked at.
1: Yeah, and something, you know, maybe as a future podcast subject, you know, area, Mm -hmm. you can do a more exploring is the trans voice because Mm. as that gets hopefully, you know, louder and and more visible, that people are going to learn from that, of understanding Mm. how, the you know, the differences in the gender you're born with and then that sort of... um, Absolutely. Yeah, well, I've talked about it for ages. It's so interesting. Um, But we should, we do
0: need to kind of, The next question really will be the last one so just to thank you so much this has been really interesting. I like to offer the listeners a an exercise that they can do for themselves which is something that you might do with your clients or for yourself that helps you to feel um, or helps your client to feel work on that kind of internal locus of control that internal validation is there something
1: that you would that you do with your clients or that you Mm -hmm. recommend so yeah i mean i would say that first of all introducing the concept of what locus of control is yeah um, Mm -hmm. you need to define that for most people so they understand um and sometimes you know they do have that sense of agency and they know where they stand uh and sometimes especially if they're more on the external side they don't and um so there's a little bit of psychoeducation around that but um you know, something that I do encourage with clients a lot is risk taking, um, and that's small risks. So, um, you know, if you're feeling quite helpless or anxious in a situation, it's just finding something small, you know, a a small habit to look at. So it could be taking a different route. Um, and it could be even just starting with brushing your teeth with the other hand, Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, really sort of underscoring like, You know, they'll look at you like you have two heads, but just be like, no, I'm serious. When you go home, just do it. Brush your teeth with the opposite hand. Start there. And then next week, we'll, you know, in our next session, we'll kind of see what that was like for you. Um, Or, you know, uh, moving furniture, you know, rearrange the furniture in your home, something like that. Um, Ordering something different on a menu. If you have, you know, habits of, of always getting the same thing. So again, these are very kind of small risks. This is not like making a big life decision uh, all at once. But this is just kind of helping people to get comfortable with the idea of making, you know, these little sort of micro changes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kind no. of introduce-
0: Yeah, that sounds really great. Sorry, I don't want to. you going to say some more? Oh no, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> what I w- what what I realized as you were talking is that I've muddied two things together: the internal. Um, validation and the internal locus of control and actually that's what you're talking about is also really really important because if we if we feel that we have we feel empowered then we feel that we have agency like you said that we can actually that our actions and what we do can you know actually make they actually are valid so that really yeah that's really helpful but if I if you think about what what you're actually doing the impact on your that you're having on your what you're doing and your environment that you that you are important and even if it's doing something like really tiny slightly differently that you're that you have like that kind of internal locus of control. Yeah that sounds
1: mm-hmm. helpful. Yeah. Yeah there's a really good quote too um by uh Piero Ferrucci. Mm-hmm. Um he's written a couple of books and uh he says eliminate something superfluous from your life break a habit Do something that makes you feel insecure.
0: Mm. So thank you so much. I really appreciate the time that you've spent on this. It's been very thought-provoking. And um, it's also, yeah, given me some ideas for future podcasts. So thank you, Emily.
1: Wonderful. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening
0: to The Validation Lounge with me, Sasha Jenkin. If you have a look at the show notes, you'll find more information on Melissa and also how to get in touch with her if you'd like to work with her also we use various terminology throughout the podcast and you might understand and be aware of all of these but if not I've made a list of them and how to get an explanation of them in the show notes and finally I'd be really grateful for your feedback if you wanted to get in touch and you can do that by accessing the website which is validationland.com thank you